Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to The Crux. Gary, good to have you here. We have a great program. We're actually going to do what we've done the last couple of years and have some guests on to talk about the PR Week Boston University Bellwether Survey. Some of our, our friends on the BU campus, as well as Steve Barrett, who kind of leads the editorial staff at PR Week. So really looking forward to that. But let's jump into the news. Gary, you know, let's talk about the presidential debates. I'm not too certain that the first presidential debate was either. That is, I don't know that it was presidential nor really <laughs> a debate. I heard one analyst refer to it as kind of a barroom brawl. But you and I have both been in situations working with candidates, prepping for debates. And in my mind, these are always elements of strategy. And they have a mm -hmm. lot to do with kind of where the campaign is. And I kind of look at three different kinds of debate prep, if you will. One is associated with a candidate who's seemingly ahead and you, you, you try to hit key themes, key issues. You tend to want to reassure the base. You know, steady Eddie is what I would call that approach. Mm -hmm. right. and then, there's the, then there's kind of the second approach where the race is highly charged, highly competitive. And there you want to tease out a few issues, maybe draw out your opponent on an issue that maybe he or she is uncomfortable with. Um, and you're looking to score a few points. And usually those points are being scored with ticket splitters, right? People right. Who, who sit right in the middle, sometimes vote Democrat or Republican. And then the third approach is kind of the, the Hail Mary pass. You know, it's like you're in a situation and it's like you believe you're down, you've got to find an opening, you need a game changer. And so you might do something a little bit that, that people are would be surprised by. You might introduce new issues that maybe people would be surprised by. But you're looking for that thing to not only change the debate, but perhaps change the, the map, as it were, with the campaign. So you looked at this. I looked at this. <laughs> it was crazy. I don't know that any of us as uh, Americans, whether we were Democrat or Republican, really looked at this and, and felt comfortable with the outcome. And so looking at this from a strategic standpoint, one, what did you see? And then two, what should we expect from debates two and three? Yeah, I think, Mike, I think that what you've laid out are the three real alternatives that you think about and you you put together a plan that is very tight against one of those strategies, right? There are people in the room who coach the candidate and they talk to him or her about things that fit with that those kinds of themes, those three themes that you talked about. I think there was no strategy here. Although if I was going to shoehorn one into one of your three, it would be third. If you believe the polls, the president is down, not only nationally, but in some swing states. Now, that was the case four years ago, too. So uh, I, I view it all with a, a bit of a grain of salt. I think the strategy was from a communication standpoint that Trump wanted to rattle Biden. He wanted to demonstrate 
what they've been saying, the campaign has been saying about Biden all along, which is that he's too old and that he's addled in some way intellectually. He's not able to handle questions, you know, that he has words, but not thoughts, to quote Saturday Night Live from this past weekend. I think all of them, Mike, the key here is to look at who is in the debate prep room with the president. It was Rudy Giuliani, Stephen Miller, Jason Miller, who is a person of some repute, not infamy, maybe is the right word, Chris Christie. And these are red meat Republicans. Who, you're saying that, that, that essentially he was he was getting he was getting sourced or prepped in a way that uh, it was to be combative, right? And it spoke to his worst instincts, mm-hmm. which is not listening and talking almost exclusively about personal grievances, right. which is sort of the fundamental theme if you think about it from a messaging standpoint for the mm-hmm. president is that we should all be angry at the left, et cetera, for the things they're doing to us. So. I think he had not just a B team, he had an F team. (laughs) That was an F team in the room with him. And I'm a Republican, Mike, I like to say I I know, I know, I know. Well, and the other side of it is is, is I don't think it was a sterling moment for Biden either. No, no. I I, I think Biden went at this and his team probably coached him is do no harm, probably, you know, strategy one, if you will. And it was connect to the same themes you've been connecting to all the time. Look for openings to differentiate you because he's going to force you into this liberal socialist against conservative world and keep your cool, right? Yeah. I think he had I, a I hard think so. time. There were times where it was like almost like he was biting his lower lip, yeah. you know, and, well, and, and then referencing the president at one point as, 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 a, as a clown and those right. sorts of things. Shut and then up, I think and, and then I and then I think the president was interesting because I do think he wanted to be combative, but he actually did more than strategy three in my mind. Yeah. You know, it's like the barroom analogy. It's like he came in and he started picking fights all across yeah. the room. It, and it got to the point that in some ways I think the strategy on their hand was let's see if we can draw Biden out and, and prompt him in the heat of the moment to make a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. It, it, but, but he talked over Biden so much that there was no opportunity even right. <laughs> you know, to make a mistake. Um, so, so it was, I, I hope in future debates that there's a way to turn off the microphone yeah. When the other person is not talking, or or maybe we've got to go back, you know, to the 1950s, 1960s game shows where they put you in a soundproof booth, you know, while the other <laughs> contestant was participating. Well, it, to your question about debates two and three, if there are two and three, based on the president's illness, um, the presidential debate commission. I mean, there is a commission. Frank Ferenkopf, a respected yeah. person, yeah. leads it. And hopefully they will think of things or they are going to do things like microphones. I don't blame Chris Wallace. There was no no stopping that train. There was no stopping the Trump train. And um, I don't blame him because I do think he's the best questioner out there from a TV standpoint. And hopefully they'll figure out some technical things to let people talk. Yeah. Yeah. So, Gary, you you mentioned COVID. Yes. Of course, that's one of the big pieces of news. And in fact, we don't know if during the debate or prior to the debate, when the president actually got 
the coronavirus. We do know that the Saturday before, there were lots of people in the Rose Garden presentation of the prospective Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And there are lots of people who are out that event that later tested positive later in the week. Of course, the president, I guess, late Wednesday night, maybe Thursday morning, mm -hmm. went to the military hospital, Walter Reed in the DC area. As we look at that, what I think is also interesting is we kind of saw a crisis unfold right before our eyes. And the White House said things, the doctor said things, different things were portrayed. The chief of staff said things, yeah. You know, and, and we ended up, the story became is who said what, when, and what's the truth? What's your read of all of this? Mike, this is, I hope my crisis class students were paying attention this weekend, <laughs> because I've never seriously seen maybe the BP, you know, Deepwater Horizon, such a clear and unambiguous lesson in crisis communications unfold in real time. Administration people, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, and the doctor, his personal doctor, were not talking to the public. They were talking to Trump in their public statements. They wanted to, and by their own admission, lift the president's spirits mm -hmm. in the press conferences that they did. But yet, it didn't take long for people to recognize the disparity in what they were describing in the president's condition, giving him drugs, steroids, et cetera, for someone who has a serious COVID infection versus the sunny forecasts of his health. The chief of staff contradicted the doctor and they had, a, they had to clear it up afterwards. By the way, one of the lessons here even is there was no communications with White House staff over the mm -hmm. weekend about whether they should come to work. There are hundreds of people who work in the West Wing. And this is important stuff and a reflection of the lack of trust that many of us have. Well, one last thing before we, we go to, to our guests. You know, one of the topics that we've talked much about on this program is employee activism. And over the last week, an interesting story kind of unfolded at a company called Coinbase. Coinbase is a company that is a growing cryptocurrency broker, banker, if you will. They trade in currencies like Bitcoin. Well, there's so welcome to the crux. Gary, good to have you here. We have a great program. We're actually going to do what we've done the last couple of years and have some guests on to talk about the PR Week Boston University Bellwether Survey. Some of our, our friends on the BU campus, as well as Steve Barrett, who kind of leads the editorial staff at PR Week. So really looking forward to that. But let's jump into the news. Things got a little bit out of hand. Armstrong's perspective was that, you know, too many employees were bringing politics and activism into the workplace. And he puts out this note. The note says that he wants Coinbase employees to be laser focused on achieving its mission. We've seen what internal strife at companies like Google and Facebook can do to productivity. And there are many smaller companies who've had their own challenges here. I believe most employees don't want to work in these divisive environments. He even went on to suggest that if you're not happy, we can help you find a job elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so what's your thought about this? Now, the other thing I should add before I go on to this is this is somewhat precipitated. There was a Business Insider story over the weekend where it suggested that one of the things that was kind of the tip of the iceberg 
was that a group of employees had removed the men's sign and the women's signs from the bathrooms in order to be more trans inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that this was creating great consternation at the headquarters of Coinbase and that that is ultimately is what precipitated the note yeah. from the CEO. I, I don't know a lot about this company and its culture, Mike, but you can't start a fire and then walk away from it and hope it goes out, right? Which is, which is what he did. And I, I just think it's an unrealistic expectation these days that you know there's gonna be no activism. The employees want the companies to live their value. Every survey says that. And the idea that it's my way or the highway this company will be a good test case. And I think it's, it's short-sighted for a lot of reasons, for recruitment, retention, for partnerships, for public engagement. And look, you, you have to pick your issues. You can't sure. be active on everything. Right. Well, but well and I think that's what's instructive here is, you know, yes, you want to be engaged and you want to be engaged in things that matter to your business and to your employees and to key stakeholders that matter to you as a business. But to your point, it can't be everything. And yeah. try, I, and, and what executives are going to have to do is, is feel out where are the spaces they're going to engage in? And then what are the boundaries? Exactly. Uh, but to simply go pell-mell and, and, and be all supportive, gung-ho, you know, we've got to fight racial injustice. And then on the other hand, turn the spigot off totally after you've kind of released employees to kind of do what they yeah. want to do. We meet, need more guidance and more measured approaches as we proceed down this pathway. And if I were him, I would take a step back. Mm -hmm. I would have taken a step back and say, what's really important to us? Mm -hmm. What are our values tell us that we should be doing externally? Mm -hmm. And talk to employees and, and see what issues are most important to them. And then you can make considered, focused decisions about your activism. That's great. So let's go to our interview. I'm sure given kind of the fast moving news agenda that we've had, we're going to hear a little bit about agility. Our guests today on The Crux are four leaders in public relations, academia, and the practice of public relations. Steve Barrett is vice president and editorial director of PR Week. Don Wright is the Harold Burson Professor of Public Relations and chair for the Department of Mass Communication, Advertising, and PR at BU's College of Communication. Arunima Krishna is an assistant professor of public relations at BU and Ray Kotcher is a professor of the practice at public relations at BU. And I think all of us vaguely remember something about Ray having a career before BU. I don't know, Ketchum or something like that, where he was CEO. CEO come on. Yeah, yeah come on. Yeah. <laughs> hey, so with this many guests, I'm going to dispense with more in-depth introductions because we'll be at it all day. Instead, I'm going to introduce the study that we're here to talk about with these four terrific guests. The award-winning PR Week slash Boston University Bellwether study is the largest study of the PR industry 
This year, really a remarkable 2,058 survey responses. That's terrific. And is the only peer-reviewed study in the industry. We got that many responses, BU and PR Week, because it was distributed via email to subscribers of PR Week, as well as members of the Public Relations Society of America and the Page Society and others, our network, the network of some of the folks who were involved in the study. So give you an idea of the timing, it was fielded from March through early May against you know, the sharp relief of the COVID-19 pandemic as it was emerging in the United States and around the world, and in the United States prior to the nationwide protests against racial injustice spurred by the murder of George Floyd. I'm going to let our guests describe its findings because they're important and I think enlightening in many ways. But I will say the thing that struck me again in this survey is that it found that communicators are in demand in their organizations more than ever. So Steve, Ray, Arunima, Don, welcome to the Crux. Good to be here, Gary. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, great to have you all. So who wants to give us sort of the top line, the big takeaway from the study this year? Communications is being put to the test like it never has been put to the test before. In the previous studies that we did, the perceived value of communication inside organizations was definitely on the upswing. At that moment, communicators felt that their work was never, ever more valued. And here's, here's the key thing about the study, too. In those organizations where communicators believed that their organizations were agile, that the communications function was agile, that they were agile practitioners, and that communications was responding agilely to what was happening out there, that made all the difference in terms of the effectiveness of communications inside their organization. So agile organizations seem to be those where communications effectiveness is scoring extremely highly. And and Ray, this builds on last year's study where the issue of agility or the finding of agility was first sort of uncovered. We had a phrase in the study last year that I remember, you know, dinosaurs in the boardroom, right? Mm -hmm. Where communicators didn't feel their organizations were as agile as they were. Is that right? Am I remembering from a year ago? Yeah, so this year we were really inspired by that line and we really wanted to investigate a central question. And the central question was, does agility make a difference in organizational outcomes? Is there a difference between uh, high agility and low agility organizations in terms of their outcomes? And when I say outcomes, I mean things like, do employees feel more empowered? Is purpose better articulated? Is it more of a focus in organizations that are more agile than others, than not? And the answer to that is yes, and overwhelmingly so. Uh, So what we did was just to give you a little background into how the mechanics of how it worked. We asked all our participants to rate on a scale of one to five to tell us how strongly or not they agreed with the statement, my organization's corporate culture is agile. So we looked at the results of that one particular item or question and divided the participants into high agility, medium agility, and low agility groups, and then compared the responses of of these three groups against each other to see if there are differences across the groups and across so many different outcomes, including employee empowerment, employee engagement, articulation of purpose, the importance of purpose, the importance of communicators in helping develop corporate policy 
we saw stark differences between high agility organizations and low agility organizations. Interesting. So, so one of the things that occurs to me, and Steve, I know you talk to a lot of chief communications officers, a lot of agency people, and Arunima, as you got into the wording, agility is one of those words that sometimes belies a, a clear understanding or a definition. I'm curious, either through open-ended responses or Steve, through conversations that you've had with CCOs, how would they describe agility? I think it's true that PR pros have always been agile. They've always been faster moving and nimble and knew how to respond to events quickly. That's always been one of the core skill sets. But as we saw last year, they had been thwarted a little bit by the structures they were working within. And I think this whole, I mean, it's been just such a crazy year, hasn't it, on so many yeah. levels. The way, when everybody went into lockdown, I think there's this famous phrase, isn't there? Pressure doesn't build character, it reveals it. And, yeah. you know, we've seen the enterprises that have really stepped up and, and, and surprising, sometimes surprising enterprises stepped up and really become so much more nimble and agile. So I think that just the fact that the, the staffers are seeing their CEOs in their home environment, it gives them a different perspective on that mm. person. And it's much more informal and agile. So I've heard of people in very regulated industries, financial industry, the pharma industry, energy, where the CEO have dispensed with these long and slightly formal communications and mm. gone with a sort of almost a Reddit, ask me anything style <laughs> bullet point thing. And they love it. They really, yeah. their people love it, right? So this is probably a good discussion as well is what's going to persist after COVID, after lockdown. Some of this stuff is just going to persist because it's, they found that it's great. And that yeah, well, in part, what you're suggesting is these communication departments, public relations departments, are, are getting a, a broader license to operate inside their companies. Absolutely. Instead of having to go through deep presentations with 27 slides, they're now going and, and, and people are just asking them and they're responding and they're working and they're moving. Yeah, and they're doing it more regularly. So it's become a weekly thing, even a daily thing. And as we all know, employee engagement, internal communications is one of the, it's where it all starts because that's the first line of external communications. If you can't get your people on board, then you're never going to get the, your other stakeholders on board. And what if you do engage them and communicate well with them, then they, they can be your first line of external communications and, and uh, reputation. So that was definitely one finding people have just had to change their attitudes as well and and almost operate in a, a completely new environment where the, there's no playbook, there's no rules. You've got right. your crisis playbook and you've got your, you know, your good practice playbook. But um, And the best communicators have stepped up. And the other thing is I think leadership has always been a, about communication to a, a certain extent, but now more than ever, the value of communication to a leader is just, it can't be overstated. And the, the, the leaders that are really effective and getting their message over are the ones who are communicating well in conjunction with their communications department. So it's like, you know, whenever there's big disruption, whenever there's a recession, actually it tends to stimulate innovation. Nobody wants it to be happening the way it's happened over the last six to seven months, but Actually, it has really underlined the value of communications and it has underlined the, the skills and the core skills and, they, and the C-suite has never been more aware of that than ever. You know, So this whole argument about, well, having that seat at the table, that's kind of gone. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if that continues to be a trend. Clearly, what we've seen in the crisis, even talking to guests on the show, is we've seen an increasing role for internal communications, employee communications in particular. But talking about trends, I mean, one of the trends that I've loved watching in the survey, maybe it's because of of, of my background where I've been involved with both marketing and communications throughout my career is this discussion about the merger of marketing and communications. And in the survey, in fact, 56% of client-side respondents noted that their public relations and marketing functions were either somewhat or completely integrated. Is this a good thing? What kind of comments did you see coming out of this particular survey? As Aruna stated, agility really benefits across the organization. So in internal, in the interaction between marketing and communications, in diversity and inclusion, in purpose, even into the field of communications technology, the agile functions ahead of the game on that. You know, I think we've all seen over the years that you can't have marketing and communications running on parallel lines. You have to be talking to each other now, we can argue whether you need some one person overseeing both or whether they just need to have a good relation. I think it comes down to the type of organization and the individuals, frankly. Yeah. Sometimes we can over-obsess on the structure, you know, if it works with the people and the organization, then, then that's fine. So, yeah, we definitely found that. You had to make some decisions about marketing. Do you, in certain categories, you know, is it actually not the right time to, we, we need to right. go, you mm-hmm. know, we need to pull some advertising here. Or we yeah. need to pivot just as companies were pivoting their manufacturing facilities to making, you know, ventilators or hand wash while they're pivoting their marketing to emphasize health and safety. Procter & Gamble did that great TikTok yeah. piece with Charlie D'Amelio and the governor of Ohio was involved in that. That's really powerful. And that's... that's well, and it's been interesting to watch in the sense that it seems like some B2Bs pulled back. And that basically CPG companies in particular use this as a way to change or reformat messaging. Seemed like a lot more also went to the digital side of the coin. Any observations there? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Walmart, they would they would be talking about getting, you know, their, their facilities being used as test centers and other retailers, you know, opening them up for that and telling people about it because obviously that was a big big issue for people getting tested properly. It's, it's, it's brought purpose to the fore as well. I mean, yeah. we'll talk a bit about the other incidents over the past six months. Mm-hmm. It's just underlined it even more. So pur- purposeful marketing and people wanting to know what a brand or a company thinks about a subject and where they stand, you know, they've doubled down on that and quite rightly too. Um, but you have to do it in a very sensitive way, right? Yeah. So we've also seen some missteps where people yeah. have totally missed missed the point and as we all know now on social if you do, if you make a misstep you know about it within minutes yeah. it's not Sometimes seconds exactly. <laughs> and it seems it's interesting you know consumer habits have changed we're all at home well we're not all at home and let's not forget uh-huh. there's million, lots hundreds of thousands of workers out there who don't have the luxury to work from mm-hmm. home and the great workers on the front lines that we've been profiling at PR Week and we, you know, at our, at our awards, right? We had to yeah. think, well, is it right to be celebrating? Well, yes, it is, but actually we need to pay tribute to the essential workers, which we did. We had Michael Phelps on to talk about mental health because 
he was our communicator of the year because everybody's mental health has been tested. You had issues with it before or after. Everyone's had, had mental health difficulties. Yeah. Um, so those, those things have all played into messaging and marketing. And it's very difficult to now say, well, where does marketing start and communications finish or vice versa? Because it's, it's all part of the same process. Yeah, we're all using the same tools. It's, yeah. Sometimes it's just a matter of what the audience is. Aruna, was there any other data you want to point us to in the survey around this PR marketing question? I have a really interesting quote that speaks to some of the things that we've been talking about here, particularly about what agility means. And so I have a quote here from somebody who says, we have to be flexible and agile to meet the new demands of customers during the evolving technical changes. That quote sort of captures everything we've been talking about so far. We also found that in terms of putting agility and juxtaposing it with whether companies were integrated or not, we found that companies were pretty much spread across. So even within highly agile organizations, we found several people who said that their marketing and PR was integrated. We also found the same finding among low agility companies. So mm. across the, the spectrum of agility, we're finding that companies are in the process of integrating their PR and marketing. We actually did some uh, analysis of the data just the other day on the integration issue. And what we found was that those organizations that told us that their comms and their marketing functions are fully integrated, 54% of the fully integrated organizations said that we're high agility. Those who are separate and say that, they're, that the comms and the marketing functions are separate, only 34% said that we are high agility. So I, I think it's interesting that when it does come together, it can be very potent and very powerful. Yeah. And look, all of this, Ray, to that point, and Arunima, Steve, I think Steve is exactly right. The organization hardly matters to me, but the integration of what a brand or a company stands for and how you express it and how you act on it is more important than ever. And this idea that of purpose and social value also creates risk when you make those expressions. You better be sure, for example, if you're, let's say, very aggressive on Black Lives Matter as a social value that you support, that you're looking at your political contributions in the United States, and you're looking at other policies within the company, and whether they speak to that kind of equity that you express in your Black Lives Matter statement. So however these things come together, they better, <laughs> whether it's in an organizational table or just in the discussions in the C-suite. So I want to go on. I want to grill my educator friends here. First, Don and Ray, I'd like you to think about the events of 2020 and these survey results. Do they change communication education as it's being practiced today? W what is going to change in the classroom, Don, well, or, or should change? They should change it, but as everybody on this call knows, change within education takes forever. Change within business can take an hour or two it can take multiple years to get things done. Got to go to this committee and that committee and so forth and so on. But I think that there's several areas that, that we're noticing right off the bat that certainly with, with both of our undergraduate graduate programs at Boston University, one of them is the insistence on public relations students understanding the business and the business aspect of it. And, and, and Gary and Ray, as you both know, because you, you, you're teaching required courses in those areas. There are only about 10 or 15 universities in the United States. There are about 350 universities in the United States teaching 
public relations, but only about 12 to 15 of them have this business approach. And the other piece, and it's kind of hard to teach, but it's off the, the agility piece. In the old days, you might, somebody would ask you a question and you'd have maybe a week or two to respond appropriately. Now you have, you know, I mean, 10 seconds, maybe, maybe, maybe 30 seconds to, 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 you know, respond via a, a text or email or uh, somewhat. And I think that that's going to dramatically change how we handle this. And I mean, just the delivery of, of this information, how are we going to teach? Is it going to be continue in remote ways and so forth and so on? And all of this yeah. tied to the fact that uh, Anthony Fauci uh, is quoted in the most recent edition of Time Magazine as saying, this isn't going to change folks. This is going to be coronavirus situation is going to be with us clearly till the end of 2021 and probably into 2022. Wow. And, and Don, what your comments underscore a theme that runs through the study, which is about time, right? The, the, it's all about time now and, and agility, the skill or capability to be agile speaks to this need for speed, right? And that time is so much more important for practitioners these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, let me just add to that for a moment, Gary. You know, as, as we know, an important foundation of our work always has been and continues to be, and something we teach and focus on in any good public relations program is that communications needs to be authentic, that it needs to be ethical, that it needs to be compassionate. But I think you're absolutely right when you say now it needs to be faster than ever. So we right. can't we can't lose the foundation of who we are and how we've taught good public relations to be practiced. But to add that layer on top of it, I just want to add a couple of things to Don's point about education, I think, has to go as we look forward based on what's happening out there in the, in the environment and, and what we've seen in the study. I think we've done a very good job teaching our students about social value creation and, and purposeful communication. They understand it. And and, and frankly, they, they come to academia passionate about that. I think we're doing a good job on that. I think we're, we're getting better at, as Don said, on business and, and finance and, and strategic thinking. And I think we've done a good job on teaching them to be, to be agile, to be fast, to use digital social tools to, to respond in real time. So I think we've done a good job in that regard. I think there are three things that we really need to think hard about here in terms of preparing them. And this is something that was happening before, but I think that, that what's happening out there from a social justice standpoint, from an economic standpoint, and from a health standpoint has accelerated, as you said, everything. Time is compressed and moving really fast. First, it's data analytics. You know, we've done a great job on research and measurement and evaluation, but Data and analytics, which we have now, helps us as public relations and communicators bring the facts to the discussion mm -hmm. and in real time. Rather than guessing at what's going to resonate out there from a creative standpoint, we can predict what's going to resonate out there using data. And Rather analytics. than just relying on your gut, Jack Welch used to say, but wasn't always 100% accurate. Your gut well, wasn't always right. That's why, that's why we were paid. You know, because, <laughs> well, because our gut was in tune with what was happening. Should be pretty good. Yeah. Right. But the data and analytics, you know, really helps you bring the facts, the real-time data and informed decision-making to the table. Second thing I would say, and this was something that we all know well was 
absolutely becoming central, but it's the whole idea of change communication, change management, organizational behavior. We've really got to make sure our students are leaving the classroom and leaving the programs that they're in, understanding internal dynamics. Because when you take a look at any major change effort inside an organization, when you take a look at disruption and you talk to top management about what's their number one concern about responding to disruption or becoming disruptors themselves, uh, what they say is, can I get my employees there? Can I get them there fast enough? Can I get everybody moving in the same direction? And man, oh man, did we see that big time back in March. All of a sudden, the, the rules of engagement with employees changed instantly in, in a couple of days. Their work environment, what was expected of them, the tools that they were using, it all changed in a moment. And in fact, this is key to linking up to your to the earlier part that we talked about in the report in terms of agility, exactly. right? Precisely. And then the third thing that I would say that we really need to get good at is the computer technology application side of things. And, you know, I think that our students need to be taking a computer science class as much as that might pain them and it would pain me to do it. Yes, exactly. Well, I think it's imperative. If you think about AI and how important those things are becoming in every area of business and government, not-for-profit work, and around the world. All of these technology tools, we as communicators need to understand how to apply those tools. And honestly, in our studies over the past three years, this is the third year we're in this study, the application of technology never scored highly. Interestingly, in this study, agile organizations did say that they applied technology or believe that they apply technology better than, than others. Generally speaking, communicators have a long way to go. Those are things we need to add into the curriculum of communications today. Yeah, you know, earlier on, Ray, you brought in into the discussion social justice and I'm reminded that the data in the survey, a lot of this happened prior to the George Floyd incident in, in Minnesota. So Steve, I'm really curious, you know, you've at PR Week, you've done a lot of terrific reporting on how companies have responded to kind of rise up against racial injustice. I know that between 2014 and 2016, there had been a number of murders of black men in the U.S. and Corporations came together and created CEO action for diversity and inclusion. And then even in Canada, post-George Floyd, there's now a group, Black North. And so you've got all these organizations making pledges. The real question, I guess, for you is, do you really see as you talk to companies and you talk to CCOs and you talk to agency folks, are companies really changing or are they giving all of this lip service? Yeah, I think time for statements and time for diversity executives is it's got to go beyond that. You know, there's still only three black CEOs in the Fortune 500. We're doing a process at the moment called State of the PR Nation, where we're going around 50 cities in the US talking to in-house PR pros and agency pros. We wanted to get a very diverse view of the country, all, all around the country, not the usual cities as well. You know, obviously we're talking to them too, but and it's amazing when you just look at the C-suite and how it's all white, you know, loads of enterprises still, and it's a problem. And in the PR agency sector, we did an analysis after the George Floyd incident. And, you know, there's a lot of work to do, especially at senior levels. So 
it's got to go beyond this. And I do feel like we might have hit a tipping point. I do feel that people have suddenly woken up and thought, not just on the, this, this executive business level, but on, on basic things like their fellow co-workers who, if you're black, you don't necessarily feel comfortable going home after dark because yeah. you might have an experience in an encounter with a, a law enforcement officer and that's a very different thing. It's something that I, as a white, white male, have never even thought about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, we've all been in dodgy situations, but that's not on my day-to-day agenda, all right? It's, it's just not. And understanding that, I think that a lot of white people have heard stories like that and, it, and it's really shocked them. It has changed opinions. Now, should, that should have happened a lot, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But in terms of business, I do feel there's change. Okay, you look at Edelman has appointed its first black board member. Now, you might say that's well long overdue and their, fig- their figures didn't stack up particularly well against their competitors in the analysis that we did based on our agency report. So I'm glad to see that Richard Edelman and the team there are doing that. If you look at Amazon, they've appointed their first black board member. The founder of Reddit actually stood down and was replaced by an executive of color. And sometimes it's going to need that, right? Because if everybody stays in place, then this isn't going to change. It isn't. Right. We've seen GM set up a diversity committee, but a committee with a mission to actually produce real change. And it's good to see that the CCO is on that committee, reporting directly into Mary Barra. Mary Barra, in terms of diversity, she's a female CEO. GM has a female CFO as well. That's good to see. City has a new female CEO coming in, and they have a black CFO. So, you know, you're looking at companies that might be regarded as a little bit conservative. What about more on the communication side or the public relations side? Are there particular things that companies have done that impress you in this space in terms of getting it real, getting it right? We've often said that uh, there's more diversity in, in-house, but I'm not sure that's necessarily true because there are a lot fewer of those jobs. You do see more black CCOs for sure. We, made a, we didn't put Damon Jones on top of our power list this year because he was black. We put him on because he's a fantastic communicator. Yeah, for sure. For sure. He's, he's got the most senior role at Procter & Gamble, which is one of the biggest companies in the world. That's great, right? That is good to see. But as Damon said on Twitter when he got that honor, he wants to be the first of many, right? He, he, the, the fight isn't over, right? So I, I have seen agencies stepping up. Interestingly, because I'm, I'm now involved with Campaign, which is our title that covers the advertising industry. You've seen a lot of appointments there, chief creative officers, which was, a, was not a diverse role. And the other CCOs, <laughs> the chief creative officers, uh, that's a vital, important position at advertising agencies and, and, have, and seeing more. Now we're in the midst of uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. Are we, are we also seeing more plays with Latinos in the C-suite relative to communications marketing? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I'd love your take on this, Mike, because mm-hmm. um, obviously there has been a focus on Black Americans throughout this period and, and the Latinx community maybe hasn't been discussed as much and actually I'd love to hear your viewpoint it's one of the most senior Hispanic executives in the business you've done agency side you've done client side what's what's your view on that See, I I think fundamentally we've got to focus more completely on diversity and inclusion and we need to think about the audiences that we're trying to move those audiences aren't you know a cookie cutter they're not just one group or another 
So I think it's incumbent upon agencies, it's incumbent upon companies that if they're fully going to connect with their remit, which is to connect with a world of consumers, they need to understand and reflect the actual individuals they're trying to reach out to and connect with. Otherwise, I think their, their fundamental remit is at risk. If we have people in communications that don't understand the motivations, the concerns, the purchasing power, the proclivities of various audiences, then why are we in this business to begin with, right? I think it's an existential question, particularly for agencies, but also for in-house to think about how does their diversity better connect with the need to connect with these vast, diverse audiences. Yeah, we spoke to Hanno Cabrera, who's- Yeah, friend of mine, yeah. General Mills and uh, Hanno- I've been at McDonald's before that and Bursa yeah. Marsteller before that. Absolutely, and, and you know, he, he's definitely running an agile organization there and he talked about how General Mills is in the food supply chain, uh, something you're very familiar with from your time at Cargill, how they had to really act quickly in, a, in an agile fashion to get, get their products into stores and get them to customers when they really needed them, you know, essential items. So, but yeah, I'm not sure you answered my question there about the Hispanic. No, no, no. I, I, my, 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 my question was... All the time. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no change no. there, Gary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The que- I, mean, I mean, I think, so, so, so my answer is yes. There needs to be attention to Latino PR and marketing professionals, just as we're tending to give more attention to Black professionals in this craft, but it's primarily driven by the fact that society's changed. And if you're going to connect with that society in smart ways, you've got to continually line up against who you're trying to communicate with. That doesn't mean that, you know, Mike Fernandez can't communicate with a Black person. It doesn't mean that an Indian person can't communicate with an Anglo person. It just means that one, we have a lot of work to do. It's, it's not just Black. It is diverse. But the Black piece is very important at this particular point in time. And I would say to this discussion, watch the Page Society. Yeah. I really think with Charlene Wheelis as a Black woman and the adoption by Page of the Diversity Action Alliance, I, I think you're going to see a lot of progress. I agree. At the page of course, I'm participating in that too. So exactly. So it, <laughs> Truth and packaging. Uh, I do think, Steve, your point is taken. That I do think this is a a moment where real change is going to happen. We we've seen in other social policy issues. Uh, after Parkland, we thought in the United States that uh, the Parkland shooting tragedy, we thought gun laws might change in the United States, but that never happened. I, I actually think the Black Lives Matter movement, thankfully, will persist. So I want to say thank you to all of you for being on. Much gratitude to all of you. Steve, I do want to ask about the survey itself. How do folks find it? What's the, you know, I know there's a premium edition of the survey as well that has a little bit of a more depth to it. Glad you asked, Gary. So yeah, you should go to prweek.com slash bellwetherreport2020 to get the premium edition. And I really do recommend that you do that. There's so much more material in there, deep dive into the data. You can find the articles on prweek.com. Just put in a search for Bellwether Survey and you'll find those. And there's there's lots of follow-up content as well. There's a panel at the PR Decoded event, which is on October 13th to the 15th, featuring Arunima. So it's going to be great. Actually, Damon Jones was on that as well. 
so it's a, it's a good session and we're, and we're digging into the whole subject of purpose there and we have our purpose awards so we're celebrating the best practice cases yes, that really address that there's some brilliant work there look out for this state of the pr nation thing as well because that would be really fascinating to to dig into not just new york chicago san francisco la but 50 cities around the country and talking to pr professionals oh, that's fantastic a, a great snapshot I'm looking forward to it. I am a premium customer for the survey, and I can tell you it's worth it. <laughs> I, I'm a premium kind of guy. Everything in my life is pretty much premium. Gary, I had to ask you, did you ever tell Jack Welsh that his gut, gut feeling was wrong? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm still alive, Steve, so the answer is no. <laughs> well, listen, thank you all thank you for, for being on. Power, <laughs> thank you all for being on, on The Crux. Terrific. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for thank having you very us. much for having us. Thanks, Stay well. See you all soon. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.